Welcome to another episode of What's New in Wagyu. It's me again, Stephen, here to help guide you down this enlightened path of Wagyu today. So today we're going to do some stuff a little bit different than we usually do. Um, today we're going to start talking about a little more in-depth on genetics and breeding. And we will be able to move down that road as we go along. So to start off, I'm going to have Lane come back and help us because that's important. Because sometimes I get off topic a little bit when we get into genetics. So we're going to try to pick two bulls every week if we don't have a butcher shop talk. And that, those are the bulls we're going to talk about. Um, I'm going to start with the oldest bulls and move our way to the bulls from the 90s. And then to current sires so that everybody can kind of follow along and know where these bulls fit in in the genealogy of the Wagyu tree. So, um, Lane, how warm is it today? It is currently about 17 degrees below zero in Firth, Idaho. A balmy, balmy morning, clear skies, sunny day, colder than the Dickens. So the cool thing is, is um, Idaho does get a little bit frigid from time to time, but it's a cyclical event for us. We know that we're going to get at least a week, if not two, of negative 15 to negative 25. Like I think the high today is supposed to be negative one. Um, that's not terrible for us. Uh, we prepare for it. The interesting thing is, is it's usually a touch sooner in the year that we get this. This first or second week of January is usually our coldest part of the year. So the problem is, is we decided, um, well, we put embryos in to come the first week of February. So we're having full blood red and black embryos in this weather. And that's not fun. It's not fun for the cows it's not fun for the calves it's uh, really hard to keep those calves warm um it's a good thing we have a good uh nursery facility if you want to call it that or a calf barn that once they're we're moving the cows into the calf barn having them uh birth in there it's warmer but it's still well, not it's still not and we calve outside. Like the reality is, is they're dropped out in the maternity pen and then brought inside to bond. Correct. You know, that's the the big thing. Um, we bring them in once they've hit the ground. And sometimes that's instantly. And sometimes that's five, 10 minutes after they've hit the ground. We try to be as efficient as possible. But sometimes at night you don't catch one for a little bit and as long as mom is good and on top of that calf drying it off we usually don't have too many problems um the big problem comes is if you have a cow that's unable or unwilling to take care of that calf appropriately uh those ones usually go away pretty quick yeah so okay so what we're gonna do is, is we're gonna go down and we're gonna start talking about contemporary groups a little bit and then that will lead us into our first bulls that we're gonna talk about rusha and judo well we're, we're not dealing with judo today but rusha first red bull imported only national champion to ever leave japan are we going to talk first about why the sires are so important right right that's and that goes into contemporary grouping okay right so the big thing is, is we're going to cover Rusha today and Mazda. And then next week, we're going to get into 
Judo and Mount Fuji, and then we're going to run into the 90s bulls. We'll probably have a butcher shop update probably in between somewhere so that it's a good even break for us. So let's start talking about early importation animals. So Rushon Judo and Mazda and Mount Fuji, they all came in in the 70s. So everybody's got to remember that the genetic pool that they came from was a 1970s genetic pool in Japan. And in Japan, like in anything else, they're probably the most progressive people on earth when it comes to anything they do. Whatever they do, they want to do it the best they can. So I want to, I want to preface this is these four bulls were brought in in 1970s. And then we had another importation in the 90s. So we, they had 20 years to make better cattle before the second importation. And, and that, we're going to come back to that, but not today. But I want everybody to keep that in perspective. You have the most forward-thinking people in the world, and we're coveting genetics from the 70s. And, I, and I'm not sure why. So to start things off, let's start talking about Rusha. So Rusha was, uh, well, I guess we better do contemporary groups, right? So I don't know if anybody knows this, but contemporary groups are a group of animals sired by the same sire and dam. It is the only fair way to judge that sire and dam's ability to pass forward traits on. And in that group, you're going to have some stuff that's interesting, right? So in, every, in any breed, when we start collecting any form of genetics, we have what's called a bell curve. So we have 1% of the animals that are underachieving. We have 1% of the animals that are high achievers. And then everyone else fits somewhere within that bell curve between high achiever and low achiever. And the problem is, is when people start saying, oh, I've got a flush brother of this bull. I want you to remember something. Where do they lie in that bell curve? Have you seen the other flush mates? Because I know right now there's some cows out there that were bred early on by Eldon that and brought in in embryos and, and dropped that one is the top of the bell curve and the other cow is the bottom of the bell curve. And the sad thing to me is, is they're making embryos and peddling them about from the bottom end of that, that bell curve. And Lane's been able to see some of this through the butcher shop. You know, somebody bought a brother to this bull. That bull might have been great, but that full brother may have been the the outcast of the group. Let me ask a question, Steve. Um, even though, say, the offspring is from one of the bottom of the bell curve, um, can their genetics, because of what was before them, can they outperform? Never. Their ne never. This is why. Genetics are expressed, right? So the genes you have today are the genes you're stuck with. If your sister, or say you had a brother, Lane, and he was six foot five, 250 pounds at 2% body fat, and you're five foot eight and old right now, but in your prime, you were probably running around five to 10% body fat, right? Maybe, maybe a little yeah. higher, about five to 10. So five, Correct. eight, mm -hmm. five to 10. The likelihood of your children inheriting the, the genes that your brother got 
are fairly low. There's that one in a million possibility, right? But the genes you have are passed to your wife in, in the baby-making process, and those genes are perpetuated forward. So prime example, so Eldon had some cows. One was called A1. They had like A1 through to A10. Uh, there's some bulls in there, Kumimoto, and I, I can't remember what the other bull was called. I think his number was A10, but uh, A1 through, through 5... Uh, those cows, you know, I, I know for sure A1 was at the top of the bell curve. She's, gee, she's just a beast. She's almost as big as the D4 cow. Um, she's probably got an inch on her in height, but not in length. But uh, the A5 cow on the flip side, right? So they're all Kalanga Red Stars um, on top of B647 out of, out of Australia. They were all done by Academy Wagyu. She's pushing a bull now called international um and a cat uh, there's another one too international has a brother but they're all the same breeding right so here's the problem a5 is about oh four inches shorter and a good foot shorter in length so you've got a cow now that is at the bottom of that that bell curve because yeah. all of her brothers and all of the other animals were all larger in frame than she is Here's the other part. Um, Eldon used her a lot more because he sold the other ones and no one really wanted her. Like, like they didn't come in to pick A5 up, right? And A1 had a problem early on where she wasn't collecting embryos efficiently. So El Eldon had didn't, at that time didn't have much of a choice, right? Cool. So he had kept two animals hoping that he got um, and, and I'll tell you right now, you start picking animals when they're six, seven months old, you're gonna, you just don't know. So when they used to stand outside in the pen together, you'd have a one, just a gigantic, beautiful cow. She, you know, she, uh, if you look on her, on her diagram records, I think she was dropping, she was, you know, weaning six, 700 pound calves. Like she's just a monster of a cow and, and everything that we would want, right? Everything that we would go out and look for in a cow. She had length, she had depth, she had rib, she, you know, her offspring marble okay, you know. And then there's A5, which is the exact opposite. Now, I'm not saying you can't fix A5 with better sire selection, right? Correct. Like, like you can bring a sire in that gives you some of the stuff she's missing, but she's never, so sire by sire, side-by-side -side comparison, A5 is always going to be more poor in quality of calf than A1, always. And so a person shouldn't hope that the offspring is going to be any better than their, their mom. Correct, but, but and, and base their And base their strategy on hope this will get better. Right, and here's the other problem. What is the first thing I always ask to see when we go and buy cows? I want to see the... I want to see the, the dam. Pairing. I yeah, the see pairing the and, so, and who the dam is, yeah. Right, so it's right. so important to know who the mother is because the mother has the least amount of genetic flow forward, right? Not saying she doesn't give 50%, but she's going to have far less influence on the industry because of the minimal amount of calves she'll have over a lifetime. You know, you have a bull, you, geez, you can collect 300 straws of semen sometimes on one collection. A good collection on a cow, you're getting 20 to 40 embryos, depending on the cow and who she is and, and your ability to manage her, right? So 
with males, you can throw that stuff out there. With females, we've got to be more careful because there's so few genetic samplings of them because they don't give as much genetic flow forward for the next generation. Okay. You, you know, it's just a matter of numbers, right? You are foolish if you don't see multiple members of the flush. You know, you're, you're just foolish. Um, and if you think that you're going you're gonna to save some money by buying the lesser one and get the same results, you're foolish too. Unless you're like the guy who would win the lottery on a regular basis, you probably shouldn't be playing that strategy because now you're doing the worst thing you could ever do for the industry. You're propagating bad genetics. Even though the genetic line is the same, it doesn't mean that they're the same animal and it doesn't mean they're going to produce the same animal in the future. Like, um, we'll put it this way. Eldon always told me that if the cow is not going to be a rock star in the donor pen and it, she's not going to be something that you would be proud of perpetuating along and being stuck to the rest of your life, uh, you probably shouldn't breed it. And, and we all do we all do weird things from time to time because we find a cow we love, right? Right. But overall, that's that's a very bad breeding strategy if you're going to a want to be in this industry a long time, but b you want to have the best animals available every year. So that people want to come back. If they buy a cow from you and she just never turns out, the likelihood of them coming back to buy another cow for you is pretty small. Unless you've sold them multiple cows that have turned out and then you just have that one bell curve item, right? Correct. Um, the other thing is, is fertility, right? A bigger, fleshier, you know, better structured cow is always going to outperform a, a non-structural, you know, lesser cow, sis, half-sister or full-sister because they have the nutrients available to get that done. They're not they're not fighting for the nutrient gain. They're not fighting, you know, they're easier keepers. You know, A1 has always been an easier keeper than A5. She just flushes quick, she gets big, she stays big, she stays big while she's milking. A5 Eldon always struggled keeping her in flesh. This brings up a question that I have. I mean, when we first got Poppy, right? Right. She's terrible looking. Correct. But you weren't looking at the cow specifically you were looking more of her mom and what she was like and what other characteristics that yeah and and we have her mom too right like that's the other thing that, that we have to keep this in perspective we did I, buy her mom i own her mom yeah um you know we we own her mom we flush her we we do similar breedings to poppy and poppy's cool because she's a rusha judo cow and you can breed her to any of the mainstream bulls today because everybody's breeding to Hikari and Big Al and maintain a 0% inbreeding coefficient. Like, she has zero Hikari and zero Big Al in her breeding, and we did that on purpose. The problem is, everybody, you're trying to make 0% inbreeding cows, but you look back in the breeding and you have Hikari or Big Al in it. Well, where is everybody going to go? All the bulls everybody wants to breed to today is Hikari and Big Al. But the reason, the reason I ask this is, we got her based on her contemporary group. Correct. She didn't have one. She was the contemporary group at that time. Yeah. And I, I, fully, I fully expect to have a heifer better than her out of the embryos we've been putting in. I think that she's probably the center of the bell curve. Uh, she's big. She's long. She's broody now. But we, we've, had to, we've had to bring her along to get her there. I think that in this contemporary group that we're currently building of, of flush siblings, 
that we're going to have an animal that outpaces her and that will be the new animal that we use, not Poppy so much. She'll go back and just become a cow. But that's the key, guys. We have to have contemporary groups so we know what the best animal in the contemporary group is. And that's why a lot of guys are holding on breeding percentages right now saying, hey, I want to have the right to a flush or two is because they're selling these animals young enough that they don't know where they lie in the contemporary group. You look at Poppy the day we got her versus today, and she's a different animal. Uh, she's being managed differently. She went from being a range cow to being a, a pasture cow. And, and that has a lot to do with it, right? You look at some of these animals that you see online, you see a lot of Steve Borland stuff, and they look big and thick and long floored. Well, they live in a dairy. They get all the corn silage they can eat year-round. And if he kicks them out on grass, they still have access to nutrient-based feed inside their feeder because he's not going to not feed them, right? Like, right. Like, like, so sometimes you can overcome a little bit of deficiency by taking care of your animals. That, that's the truth of it. And, and I think if, as an industry, if we don't start looking forward and moving forward from these original stock animals, we're going to run into some trouble because nobody's out there proving good third and fourth generation bulls nobody is you know we do it and then we end up holding on to the semen and then the semen becomes very popular at some point and we sell the semen and we've already moved on the problem is is some of the best semen bulls we're selling right now we've moved on from that breeding five years ago we've made something better and continued to make something better every generation if that's not what's going on you're breeding wrong and that brings us right into Rusha. So here's the deal. You've got a bull in Rusha who is small, fr medium framed. We'll say medium framed. And, and I would almost say he's on the verge of small framed. And yes, he was the only standing national champion to ever leave Japan. But I want you to think about the generation of animals he came from. He came from the 90s. My Rusha judo daughter looks nothing like my high performance, hyper, you know, high marbling, you know, master chef daughters or the D4 cow for all that, you know, to matter. They look nothing alike. She kind of looks like a buffalo in a way because she's got a real high dorsal spine, flows down into a smaller hip set. You know, it, that's what she is. That's what she was designed to look like by the breeders in the, in the 70s. And I wanted to have an animal that was representative in my herd to 70s era breeding. Does that make sense? Yeah. I wanted to know where things started so that I, I knew where I wanted to continue to go. And I use her sometimes as the whipping boy of the herd because I go out in the herd and I go, okay, she looks better than Poppy. 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 And if I find one that doesn't look better than Poppy, they go down the road. And that sometimes is as valuable as anything. To and she doesn't look bad, Lane. I know. But that's sometimes, you know, these cows become the whipping boy. I tell people I got a hold of her because I wanted to have a zero inbreeding cow that I could breed to 80% of the popular bulls today and get a 0% inbreeding coefficient. That's why we got her. We grabbed her mom too because the same reason, right? We could rebreed her yep. and she'd be great. So here's the deal. Poppy right now has three brothers and three or four sisters sitting in the pen right now. And we'll probably offer the brothers up for sale in a month or two. Yeah. So you're going to get a, a Rusha 430, the original Rusha, over a Judo, over a Shugmaru. 
but all Australian breedings because they all come out of the Hanode line. And, and nobody around has ever had this opportunity to get these cows. We did it because we wanted more females and we ended up with some bulls along the way. Right. Right. And I have a hard time cutting these bulls because they're developing so well that no matter what I do, they're always going to be in the top, the top 20% of the herd. It's just the reality of it. You know, I've got a recital son that sits right next to him and he is, he's the one we will retain this year. Correct. And, and the difference between him and them is he's a little darker colored. And, and I, I'm a sucker for, for super dark red bulls. That's the one he pointed to. That's who's going to Denver next year. Right, and we'll take him down to Denver. We'll, we'll show him all over the country because I've, I haven't had that since we had Hagrid. Correct. I haven't had a bull that is just stand out from day one since we, since we got a hold of Hagrid. And Hagrid's a big owl over a JVP Hamare 30 e cow. Um, another one of those weird meetings that nobody really sees a lot of more. Uh, he's got a flush brother, SOR big owl that a lot of people have used and contemporarily their sister is the best one of the group. She's bigger, deeper, longer. She is, she is the best of the contemporary group. Hagrid and SOR big owl seem to fit right in that middle curve. And they do have another sister that I've seen that's at the bottom end. And, and it is what it is. Your animal fits within the curve that they're within. So it doesn't do you any good to say, oh, no, I think she's better than that. The reality is you're either at the top, the bottom, or you're in the middle. And I like being in the middle sometimes, Lane. Do you want to know why? Tell me. I can go either way. If I want to, if I want to increase size, decrease size, if I want to stretch them out, if I want to shrink them up, it gives me an easier opportunity to do that than the biggest cow. Or the smallest cow. It gives me some room to move and to do some things different. Or say I don't like a hip set. You know, it gives me that opportunity to, to bring in a bull that maybe gives me a better hip set, hip set but it's going to give me some length. Okay. So the problem with Rusha, and this is what I'm going to tell everyone, he was a great bull for his time. No one can contest he wasn't the best bull for the year that he won in Japan, the world championship. Nobody can contest that, no, right? He did it. He, he, he did won it. it. He right. won it. Yeah. Hands but the, down. But the problem is, everybody, when I started in this game, people were giving that stuff away. I remember sitting with Lane one day and going, I've got to send a, a semen tank down to a guy in Texas, and he's just going to give it to us for the price of us shipping it back and forth. Now you guys are paying $20,000 a straw for this. Do you see a problem? There is some inflationary period that's going on that's not true inflation. You don't go from 10 years ago for people pretty much giving it away to people, everybody wanting it, and it's $20,000 a straw. There's, there's something going on that's not normal in the industry. And now everybody's trying to grab some, so everybody's paying this inflated price, and it's going to stay there now. And people who have a little bit think that they have this gold mine. I know between me and a couple guys I know that if we really wanted to ruin this whole deal for everyone, we'd open up our semen tanks and, and you would have hundreds of straws on the market tomorrow. And the other thing that I see is they're being stuck with, nine, is it 1990 or 1970? Genetics, and we're way, way past that now. Right, right. And, and they're getting 1970 genetics on 1994, 1995 genetics, right? 
So let's just say, let's split the difference. You're probably getting what Japan had in the 80s. The problem is, guys, we use Rushan Judo for two purposes. One, they're complete outcrosses. So if I get an inbreeding coefficient that's bouncing close to about 20, 25, 30%, I go in and I inject Rusha to drop that inbreeding coefficient down. I inject Judo, who, and here's another one, guys. You guys are all buying Judo semen for three, $4,000 a straw. I've been breeding to Judo for long enough to know that most of the straws out there are low-efficiency straws, and we have to do IVF to get them to work work at a high percentage of, of fertilization. These straws have been floating around in this industry, floating from tank to tank, who knows how the tanks were taken care of, for 30 years almost now. Over 30 years, right? Because we're 2023. Correct. So 30 years would have been 2020-ish, or 20, 2000. Yeah, 1970 to 2000, 30 years. And we know they came in in the mid-70s, so let's cut that down to 25 years, plus another 20 years, Right. So, and so if we're having trouble with them, if, the way we take care of our stuff. Right. And I've never bought, I've bought two runs of judo that have been great. And that's it. Like I have two, I bought two runs of judo eight and a half years ago. And they're the first judo straws I've ever been around that I can run conventional with. And we bought all of them at the time that the lady had to offer. And they're, you know, I've sat them in the tank and we use them only when we're trying to drop in breeding coefficients. And here's the problem. We never breed them back to cows that have Big Al or, or Hikari in their baseline because guess what? It doesn't help me because now I can't go forward and use WSI Yumanyaru. I can't use Kajikari. I can't use Master Chef. I can't use any of those bulls and keep a 0% inbreeding coefficient. So if you think that you're buying an animal with a 0% inbreeding coefficient, I want you to ask yourself and look at two things. Is there Hikari in it? Is there Big Al in it? Is there Katamaru in it? Is there JVP um, Kuniseki? If there is in that mating, your generational forward, your calf from that animal will not maintain a 0% inbreeding coefficient. Because the likelihood in today's world is you're going to run into a bull that has one of those matings within it and that you're going to be stuck with them. Not stuck. Stuck's not the right word, but you're not going to be able to drop the inbreeding coefficient as far as you could. So with Poppy, if I went and used Big Al, I would have a 0% breeding in, uh, inbreeding coefficient. If we came back on that calf with a Hikari baseline, we'd still be below 10%. You know, if we came back on top of her with, with MasterChef, we would be at a 0% inbreeding coefficient, right? So that's the key, guys. It's not that the cows need zero inbreeding coefficient. It's... Can I breed the calf to bulls I like to use in my system all the time to maintain that 0% inbreeding coefficient? Okay. So the other problem is with Rusha is, and nobody's, he has funky ribeye size. So if you're breeding them to 90s era or early 2000 era cows, you're going to find out that your ribeyes and your New Yorks look funny. And ask Lane, I can usually pick them out real quick when I walk in. And I know which bulls do this to us. Yeah, he's really not quite happy when, with the New Yorks when... When they're funny shaped. Yeah, they're... They're thin. They're, they're thin. And they're not... And they're not full, nice, full, um, concentric... New Yorks that New people Yorks. are used to seeing. And yeah. then you're going to have a problem. I'm going to tell you right now. 
you start having an issue with your New York sizes, and that is the first time you're going to get a complaint from your customers because they couldn't identify them, even if they're labeled, and then they don't believe that they're New York's because they're not the right shape. And if you deal with a high-end clientele like we do, which you guys probably should be if you're in this game, they are the most needy clientele base that we're going to have. Right, Lane? They're sometimes they're not fun to... They're the guys with the most amount with. of money, and they're the ones that you're used to getting things the way they want them. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm, I kind of cheat the system because I have Lane deal with them. <laughs> Until you have to deal with them. Right, right. right. There's a point where the nonsense is enough and I get involved and then everybody's sad. But for the most part, Lane has to deal with the customers because I'm, I've got other things going on and I need to sit here, you know, and be able to breed cattle appropriately so that they finish and that Lane can get them out the door as quickly as possible to our best customers. And we never want one of our customers to call and say, hey, I, I'm disappointed because your New York shapes are wrong. I don't care if you think that you're a Wagyu breeder and it doesn't need to look like a like an Angus or a Hereford. It needs to be in similar shape. It better not look like it, but it but needs to have a similar shape because people are used to seeing New York's look a certain way. They're, they're used to seeing ribeyes look a certain way, and when you start losing that, that's when you start running into problems. Perfect example is Keith, right? Yep. He's... Coming through from Utah, going to his cabin in Montana. Yep. Says, can I stop? I need some ribeyes, some New Yorks. I need four of them. They need to be nice, fine shape, because I am entertaining some high-value customers. And here's the deal, guys. I will tell you this today. He will go and serve our product, and somebody's going to be calling us in a week or two wanting to buy a whole cow. That's how it happens, isn't it? That's how it works. So we always put our best foot forward. We always send our best product out. If it looks like garbage, what happens to it most time, Lane? It gets ground. It gets ground, and we pretend that it didn't happen, and we try again. We'll never do that breeding again. Now, does that mean that I just lost a whole carcass? Yeah, that, that's what that means, is that we will go back out in the pen and we will kill a different a different steer that doesn't have the same issues. So what's the worst thing that can happen, Steve? Ground beef? Ground beef, right? But that's what I'm saying, guys. It, it, you need to learn these genetics, especially if you're going to stay in this industry for a long time, because at some point, I don't care who you are, you have to sell meat sooner or later. Whether you're selling that calf on to be fed by someone else, or somebody buys a bull, has a problem with it, and castrates it, you are selling meat at some point somewhere down the line. If you sell that bull and the guy goes and uses it on his F1s, let's say you sold it to a commercial guy, and he uses it on his F1s, and they kill an animal and have a jacked-up New York, you're going to hear about it. It's not okay. The problem about the the bulls out of the 70s, and I'm going to say this when we start talking about Mazda, the black bull, is that their, their shape is different because the Japanese had a different I appeal for the shape of the animal. Today, you get into Japan and you look at their their New Yorks. You they look at you look at their ribeyes. They've done what the Americans have done. We've made them a certain shape and a certain width and a certain look, so that everyone in the world can understand that this is a New Yorker. This is a ribeye. They can identify it just by the eye appeal. And when we don't do that, you you guys are leaving yourself out there for some really bad days. Here's the other problem, Lane. Where does the New York come from? Comes from the back quarter, the long distance store side, right against the backbone. 
So a lot of Wagyu guys, if you do have a problem with bulls at some point, it's going to be for a low with a low back fracture. That is where Wagyu bulls break down if they're going to break down. I've never had one break a foot. I've never had one break a leg. I've had one break a testicle, and I've had one break a pecker. But I've never had one, you know, that, that have a lot of structural problems with their front end. It's big. It's beautiful. It's beefy. There's plenty of fur to land on. They don't have problems getting in and off of cows. The problem they have is that their back, if your loin muscles are not set up correctly, but your ribeyes and your New Yorks, and they're funky shaped, they don't support his spine. And then at some point you're going to get a bull and all of a sudden he goes to mount and he's, he can't mount or he falls down. And you lose out on that bull because you weren't, you didn't care enough to make sure that those loin muscles were fully developed and were genetically sound enough for him to be a bull mounting on multiple cows. That's your fault. If you bought a bull like that, that's the breeder's fault. And that you should, you should say something about it. You should call the person who bred that bull and be like, hey, these are the things we're experiencing. Maybe we should, you know, you should think about different ways of breeding this, this line because you're now causing problems structurally in the animal. Okay. So Rishon is Red Bull, right? Red Bull. And, the, and, and guys, I've seen Rushaw sons have bad lower back problems. I've had phone calls from guys, hey, can you come see what's wrong with my bull? And the Rushaw sons, you know, Rushaw 430, the original deal, and you walk out there and they can't mount anymore or they don't want to mount. Like they will not mount and people can't figure out why. And I go, hey, run that, run that into your vet, have them check that back out. And nine times out of ten, they've got a, a fracture in that lower back and it's because you you know he just doesn't have the rib shape and cover and and the the density of that loin muscle to protect his back mazda's the same way okay and mazda's a black mazda's a black bull so you've got to remember guys so rusha was the national champion at the time got imported judo came with him who, who placed high in, in, in there too. Mazda's the black bull, and so is Mount Fuji. But, but again, they're small. Both of them are small compared to what we're breeding today. We'd never get a 1,400-pound carcass out of either of those two bulls. Okay. So the problem, you know, the problems lie really in, in the Japanese had a different value of structure then. Those bulls were sent here, all four of them, to be in a breeding program to see if the new Holstein animals that were being imported into Japan for milk, they could cross Wagyu on and what quality of beef could they get out of it? Because there were more Holsteins here or dairy breed cows here for them to try and see how it worked. And it, and it spilled into all kinds of breeds, right? It spilled into your, your continentals and it spilled into your, into your boss Taurus animals, your, your, your Bramers and that. And, and the genetics kind of spilled out to see what you could get. And at that time, until the 94s, you didn't have full-blood animals, Lane. You had high-percentage animals. You know, they bred back to the same four bulls over and over again. And eventually, they would get, like, a, a high 90% animal. But here's the deal. When you have four bulls to choose from, they were probably all red-black. And if you did keep them straight, your inbreeding coefficients had to have been so high... I, I don't know. You, you'd have to be 60, 70% inbred by that time. Okay. Especially if you get 10 or 12 generations in. The benefit is, is we know all the genetic deficiencies from the four original bulls because of that. They inbred them so heavily early on that all of the bad stuff came out. Everybody saw it. If it was bad, it happened. You know, everybody in, in the red industry gets so scared of F11. F11 is only a problem 
And it's not even a problem then. Here's the deal. F11 is a is a blood issue. It's a coagulation issue. So every high, I've seen some affected animals even. They tend to be some of the better carcasses that are generated in this industry. Even the carrier ones are higher grade carcass based than, than your, your non-carriers. So, you know, from an outside looking in, if you're, if you're going on carcass merit, F11 doesn't scare me. Jeez, 90% of the bulls I breed to have F11. Oh, F11 would be a good... F11 but, offspring would be a good strategy for... For a meat guy. Yeah, for a meat guy. For now, doing now, F1, yeah. an F1 prog- correct. program or a commercial even, program. Even correct? an affected bull. An correct. affected bull, his place should be in an F1 program, right? Correct. You bred two carriers together. You've got an affected bull. You don't want him to perpetuate that in the breed by any means. So you kick it out to to the commercial guys. They never have a problem with him. And they get just making the calves in there, right. sending them to the feedlots to be butchered. And, and what I find right? and what I find interesting, Lane Rusha is F11 free. Judo is an F11 carrier, brought in the same time. Hmm. So. The problem is, is, you know, everybody's so valuing this, this Rusha semen that you're seeing everything in the world bred to it. it what's going to happen is it's going to devalue the Rusha semen at some point because there's so many animals in the system and they're so muttly that there's a problem. You can't just breed willy-nilly and not expect to have a consequence at some point. Now, everybody I know that, that that's their breeding, you know, they hear, oh, I can make so much money with these Rusha calves. They're not breeding them to good cows, right? Correct. They're just breeding them to cows to get embryos to sell to everybody else because they're making so much money on them. Rather than breeding animals to make the breed better, people are breeding what I call breeding for profit. I, and I guess if that's their strategy, that that's their strategy, but it isn't helping the breed or the and it's not sustainable. At all, right? And it's not sustainable. So, you know, geez, 2006, they had a lipid protein test come out and, and they wrote articles on it out of Japan and they were great articles. I love to read them even to today. And everybody's like, oh, we need to do that as an industry today. I will tell you, it will not happen as long as you, as, as a majority of people are breeding for profit. I'm not saying don't make profit, right? I am not no, you're saying not, that You're not a no profit guy. But we breed and our breeding decisions are solely based on a, can we make the breed better? B, can we make the breed better and make money doing it? I'm not saying or or, or diminishing anybody out there that's trying to breed to make some money to continue on growing their herd. I'm just saying there's a way to do it where you're not giving up quality for cash. It's a longer system. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to take you more time to do it. It's going to take you longer to achieve your goal, but your herd's going to be far more sustainable at that point when you hit your goal. The problem with this breed right now is that people are jumping in. They have a lot of money. They're influxing their money on on whatever somebody sells them, and then they're rallying around whatever animal they bought because that's where they've put all their, all their, their eggs in one basket. They put it in the basket of this one breed line rather than taking the time and learning the breed, then jumping in. And they're probably getting some uh, help in making those decisions by the folks that want to make the money. Right, right. And they're not 
they're looking out for themselves and not for so Eldon always everybody. yeah you know right. de- dealing with Rusha right Eldon always told me these three things there's three kind of people in this industry that are going to hurt you there's the ones out there that don't know any better they're in the same boat you are you're trying to go down the river together and you're paddling and they're paddling but they're paddling water in your boat right correct then there's the people that think they know more than everyone else but know nothing and they're the ones that are just going to knock a hole in your boat and drive off and not care. And then there's the people out there in the breed that are there to hurt you on purpose so that they can profit. And those are the ones that don't even let you get, in the, you know, they put you out in the water but forget to give you the ore. And, and I think that number one and number two are more of the issue in the, in the breed right now than number three, but there are the number threes. It is what it is. But the number ones and twos, they're, they're going to get you as much trouble as number three is. It's just they're not doing it with, with malice intent. Correct. So that's, that's the, you know, the, the scenario around Rusha. Is Rusha a bull that we use in our program? The answer to that is yes. We use him on a minimal basis. We use him when we need to drop inbreeding coefficients. And, and I'll tell you right now, if you think that the world's running out of it, um, I know where there's quite a bit of it, and it, the world's not running out of it. It's just not being released. So if you if you hear Rusha, oh no, he's going. You know, there's there's less than 300 straws available, or there's only 300 straws in existence. That is a misconception. I'm going to tell you right now, just just because of my own supply. Right? It's now you hear that Master Chefs in short supply. That is a true statement. You know, there was only about 250 straws ever imported, right? And that was almost 10 years ago, Lane. And then you have hoarders out there that just pack 100 straws in their tank, and then the last 150 straws have either been used or sold and broke up. There's just not much out there. But Rusha and Judo, there was so much of that collected that a lot of old breeders are still holding on to a lot of stuff. So are we done with Rishon? Are we ready to go um, to Mazda? Yep, yep. We're going to go on to, Mount, uh, on to Mazda. So the problem, um, I don't know a ton about Mazda. That's the problem. And the reason is, is he's never been a bull on my radar. And I'll Because be the, of size? Uh, because of size, because of ribeye shape, because of, of New York shape. Anytime we've ever come in contact lane with a animal that has a Mazda baseline in the first or second generation, we've run into problems with ribeye shape and New York shape. So once I realized that early on, this was like year three yeah. when we started seeing these off and on. And, I, and Lane remembers this because I would go, Lane, there's something wrong. I can't figure out why we're doing this. That was what the problem was. Mm-hmm. They were either Mount Fuji lines or Mazda lines. Now I'm going to tell you a secret. Mount Fuji lines do marble better than Mazda lines. From what we've seen, right? Correct. But I have not, I have not had as much contact with Mazda lines because I didn't like their size. I'm going for a 1,400-pound hanging weight. He's not going to get me there. I'm going for uh, a, a specific ribeye and New York shape. He's not going to get me there. You're not going to get me going to New York. Nope. So I don't deal with him. That's the reality with Mazda. Mazda is a cool-looking bull in the pictures. I think that he was a decent bull for his time. But I'm not going to tell you to go out and buy some and use it, right? Like I know people that do. I have some friends down in Utah that they use Mount Fuji quite a bit. Uh, they've enjoyed it and they like what they're getting, but they're not trying to push their animals to a little more extreme. And everybody lately, I've been getting these weird comments. Well, you don't want a big Wagyu because that's just more hamburger. 
Oh, it's more ribeyes. It's more New York's. It's bigger tenderloins. It's more of everything that you want. And heck, 80% of the beef that people eat in this country is hamburger. Right. And hamburger is probably the most affordable thing a person can buy from a Wagyu breeder. And we can still give it to them for a fairly good price. Right. $10 a pound or patties for 12 And guess what? We don't have ever problems getting rid of it like what we want to get rid of. It's true. And, you know, my children eat a metric ton of hamburgers. Like, ask Lane, that's pretty much, you know, my kids eat hamburgers three or four days a week. Sometimes their mom cuts them down to one or two, but the reality is, is we're at least eating. Yeah, but when Sherilyn's working, it's back to hamburgers. Right, because they want them. They, they want they, them. They, they like them. Yeah. yeah. And we kick on the Blackstone, and we make some burgers for them, and they love it. But that's what I'm saying. Most people in this industry... They overlook the value of hamburger. Yeah. And and having a butcher shop, Lane Lane saves me from thinking like that because without it, I would be like, well, uh, I, I, what, I don't want to have all this hamburger. And Lane steps back and goes, but with all the hamburger, you're getting an extra two ribeyes. You're getting an extra two New Yorks. You're getting some extra tenderloins on each side, right? So you're getting more of everything. And it's going to cost me the same amount of money to feed a smaller animal as it is to feed a bigger one. And even individually, when we sell them individually. Right. You're looking at $70 for a 12-ounce steak to $125 for a 12-ounce steak. Right. Um, it's, I mean, the math the math, and the economics math is there to support it, right? Well, and the other thing, too, is, is when I sell a guy uh, a Wagyu steer and they see that it's 1,400 pounds hanging, they don't, they don't feel near as bad about paying for it as if it was a an 800 pound steer hanging. They feel like they're getting something for the money they're getting. Like the other day. I know this is a little off topic. I'm sorry. That's fine. But we have, we have our 1400 pound animal in there. And granted, they, I hate cutting them. They're, they're just hard to cut, right? it's It's a long day for everybody. And two weeks before that, we had a guy come in and his Wagyu steer was, he had two of them, and they were around 750 pounds. Maybe the steer went 800 and the cow went 750, right? Right. And there was such a huge difference between the, the quality of the meat. They were good. They were better than most prime you could buy out of the store by a long way. Right. By a long way. But they weren't what we were used to as our standard. Were they easier to cut? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were easier to cut. And and the guys weren't a psychological mess by the end of the day, right? Right. Because they're always so worried about making a mistake or not getting the best out of what we could, not separating enough fat to make the ground beef look... Lean enough. Lean enough. I mean, they're... It's just little stress factors. That's, it's not fun to cut them and, and, until you go to the bank. Right. And, and here's the part that, that everybody has to remember. Um, we have a different purview on, on Wagyu than most breeders out there. Most guys go and drop their steer off with somebody and they process it and they show up so many weeks later and pick it up and, and they lose that contact with the animal. And I know exactly how much bone 
I know exactly how much caudal fat. Lane, what was the melting point on that steer? 86. I've never had one below 90 till now. I attribute that to age and proper feeding. Correct. We fed enough barley and enough wheat that it dropped the melting point below 90 degrees. And this is Fahrenheit, people. 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I will tell you there's a direct correlation. There's a lot of Japanese journals out there that correlate melting point, lipid fat testing, and they, they match that to not only taste, but tenderness. And what that did for our other, for our large, large clump marbling. Yeah, yeah. The, the streaks and the lightning bolts and things you, like that. You know, you're, you're it lo- dropped its you're temperature, coarse. right? And that's the other thing everybody forgets. So coarse fat melts at a higher melting point than your intermuscular fat. So your courses are usually about 5 to 10 degrees, we've found, just through testing. Uh, they melt 5 to 10 degrees higher than um, our intermuscular and our caudal fats. So here's the deal. So 86 degrees, even if we add 10 to it, we're still below 100 degrees. So our coarse fat is more tender, and it melts better, and it's a more enjoyable eating experience than the ones that we've done where we're in our high ni- mid-90s and have that coarse fat at 100 degrees or more. Remember when we did our first melting test? Yeah, kind of And sucked. it was like at 98, and we were high-fiving. Yeah, it was a good day. <laughs> but but that's that's the difference, right, guys? I started out with with my with my fines at, at 98, and we've been able through feeding, breeding, and, and care to drop them down to 86. My goal, I never set a goal for that, right? I... I just want every carcass to be a little better than the next. And over a couple years, that's what we've done. And we've done it by, by feeding correctly and doing the right things. So, you know, my ability to control our market all the way through from beginning to end, I'm able to cut out the bad animals in our, in our contemporary group. Right, Lane? Correct. If you're the loser in our contemporary group, you go to the feedlot. If you're in the bottom two-thirds of that contemporary group, you're going to the feedlot. And don't think that when we say bottom of the, going to the feedlot or you're at the bottom of that, that uh, contemporary group, that we're losing money on those animals. Oh, no. Um, we took a bunch of animals to market here. Yep. Last month, right? F1s. F1s. And... Uh, and we got a lot of uh, bonus money because oh, of how, how good they were, right? Right, and, and here's the deal. Um, I don't know how many of you sell F1s, but uh, I'm, I don't feed F1s. We don't feed a lot of them. We no, feed very few of them. Pasture, yep. pasture and a little hay right. when it's like this. Um, but, but we do finish a few here and there, but we do so few of them. But here's the deal. I want to I want to know how many people can go out and sell their their F ones or their their coals for thirteen hundred dollars a piece at three to four hundred pounds. Because that's what we what, what we ended up with. Correct. Around thirteen hundred dollars. I think it's thirteen hundred and some change. Correct. And we had those animals from calving at the end of April, first of May, till they got on the boat in November. Well, December because we weaned them in November. Mm-hmm. Had them thirty days. Yep. And then shipped them. And we didn't pay for shipping. Nope. The company we sold them to paid for shipping. So we were out nothing for a bunch of commercial cows that didn't take embryos that we could run a bull across. 
It's all about maximizing your profit. And we don't even and we don't even uh, sell them out as F ones. No, well, no. If we're gonna sell them, if like we retain some because we have some clients that just they just refuse to buy Wagyu. But um, I sell them F one Wagyu, and we don't even tell them it's F one Wagyu. We call it premium beef. Exactly. And and we do that because I don't want to be a F one salesman. It's not my game. My game is to sell full-blood Wagyu carcasses to people who appreciate the value of them and the hard work and the artisan model. That's why our butcher shop works. It's an artisan model. We take the time, we take the effort, we do the things right so that we can get the highest return value possible for the work that we do. Sometimes Lane struggles with that because his people aren't always on board with, with the artisan model all the time and he has to correct them and bring them back into center. But that's our standard in our model. And that's my model through everything from breeding to feeding to the butcher shop. It's just how it is. If we're not going to be the best at something or in the top, the top 5%, we're not going to do it. Because we, we're not giving you a, a proper authority. That's why, as we've done this podcast, you can tell that the, the sound quality has become so much better. It's because we went out and invested a bunch of money in microphones and and boards and, and all those things so that we can make this better every week. Now, we needed a year to learn, right? Because I had no clue about any of this stuff when we started. But we've picked things up as we've gone. We've done the research, and we, we're buying you know proper microphones now. We've got a switchboard. We've got all the cool little toys to make it easier for us to produce a better podcast every week. And it's been fun. And right. it's been fun. And Lane's going to be the moderator most of the time because uh, it, it works out good because he can tell me some things from the butcher shop a little bit. And, and it's not just me spouting off genetics and it being boring for everybody. So we're going to talk now about what we're going to do next week. So next week we're going to talk about judo and Mount Fuji. And I will tell you I have way more uh, information about judo than Mount Fuji again because of the same reasoning. He's a smaller bull. He's a Tejima bull. He's... He's, I think he has a place for certain people in certain circumstances. But uh, it's going to be mainly about judo, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Lane's weekly cutting um, because he did cut the big the big steer last week, but we'll wait till next week to let him talk to you about it. Okay. So with that, I think that we're going to leave this, and we'd like to thank you and hope you come back next week for another episode of What's New in Wagyu.
my brain. 